As we do uh, every week here at Shady Grove, we'll be preaching from the Scriptures, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and get those out and open up to Luke chapter 16. Uh, If you do not own a Bible, uh, we want to draw your attention to these blue uh, paperback Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. Uh, You can take those out to use while while you're here, and then we actually encourage you to take those home and to read it. Those are our gift to you, and so we hope that you will take one. Um, This morning we'll be continuing our sermon series on the parables of Jesus called Stories from the King. And the reason why we call uh, this series Stories from the King is because each of Jesus' parables tend to tell us something either about the King or His kingdom. And so this morning what I think we're going to see is that one of the defining characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom is that they show mercy. Citizens of the kingdom show mercy. And as we're studying this parable together, what we're going to find, I think, is that being merciful comes down to the very essence, the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian. For those who believe that they have received mercy, show mercy. So let's jump in here to our text from Luke chapter 16. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And Abraham said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this morning is a hard text. It's a hard text for us to hear, a hard text for us to receive. It's a difficult teaching. Lord, be with us, we pray, that we might receive what you have to say, that we would not 
assume that we can judge your word, but that we would sit under your word and that it would teach us and mold us and shape us to be more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this parable, Jesus is doing a bit of a unique literary thing here. Um, He's setting up this fictitious conversation between a fictitious character and a real character, right? And so he's appealing to our consciences. He's appealing to a situation that we can relate to. For we know who Abraham is as the historic uh, patriarch of the Jewish people. But then he has these fictitious characters and this conversation that might happen uh, between them. Now, this is sort of a common literary tactic. A lot of church fathers did this. C.S. Lewis did this uh, masterfully in like uh, The Great Divorce and other places, these sort of fictitious conversations between real historical people. Uh, Dante's Inferno does it with the poet Virgil. And then I'm sure there's plenty of other examples today. Uh, You know, people are always writing sort of historical fiction and, and stuff like that. And so it's a very common technique. And Jesus is doing it to try and make a point to us on what it means to be merciful. And so this morning, as we're looking through this text, I want to draw out three points that I want us to see this morning. Three points and really three failures that we have in our life when it comes to being merciful. And we see these three failures in the life of the rich man. Those three failures are our failure to use our money, the failure to steward our time, and the failure to live in belief. So the failure to use our money, the failure to steward our time, and the failure to live in belief. So point one here. Now, when God instructs us in the scriptures about using our money, he tends to do it in three different ways. The first way that God instructs us with our money is use your money to take care of yourself, to take care of your children or your family. Be dependent on no one. So that's one way that the scriptures tend to to instruct us. The other way, the second way that God instructs us with our money is to give to the church, to give to the ministry of the church, to give to missionaries to be funded, for churches to be planted, for pastors and church workers to be uh, paid to do the work of ministry, and so if the gospel can go forth into the world. So that's the second way. And then the third way is you tend to have these exhortations that we should be merciful with our money, to use our mercy for good works towards others, to alleviate needs in our community and in our churches. So those are kind of the three general ways. And in our text this morning, Jesus is instructing us here on this third way, using our money for the good of others. Now, we set up this parable with two characters, the rich man and Lazarus, and they could not be further apart in socioeconomic class. First, you have the rich man, The rich man feasts sumptuously, and he's described as a man who's clothed in fine linens and purple linens, the fine linens being that he's very, very rich. And then purple, of course, is the color of royalty. Purple garments would have been very, very expensive. The dye that was needed to make the purple garments was very, very expensive. And so Jesus sets up this character as someone who lives like a king. In every sense of the word, he wears the color of royalty, he feasts like royalty, he lives like a king. And then on the other side, you have Lazarus, this poor man in utter misery, utter despair. First of all, he begs for scraps. 
Secondly, he's in complete pain every day with these sores that cover his body. And he's so humiliated because he can't shoo the dogs away fast enough from coming and licking at his sores. So the rich man and Lazarus could not be further apart, and yet they could. For in verse 26, we read that in the next life, there is this great chasm between these two individuals. The poor man, Lazarus, is taken to Abraham's side, or some of your translations might read Abraham's bosom. That's just another word for saying heaven or paradise. So that is where Lazarus goes, and the rich man is taken to Hades. Now in the scriptures, Hades isn't always associated with hell. Uh, Often Hades is just sort of the Greek um, term for the Hebrew concept of Sheol, just the place of the dead. It's kind of a neutral place a lot of times in scripture. It's just the place of the dead people. But here in this passage, Jesus seems to be using Hades as a synonym for hell. One of the common words that Jesus uses in the Gospels is Gehenna, And we always see hell described as an eternal, conscious place of torment, of misery, and pain. And this is actually probably one of Jesus' strongest teachings on hell. For here we read of flame and the pain that the rich man is in. So, one man taken to heaven, the other taken to hell. And we see This rich man, in his life, we don't read of any grievous sins that he commits. Look in this parable, we see no grievous sins in his life that he commits. The only thing we see is that he lives for himself rather than for God. That is his condemnation. Now, beloved, I cannot stress to you just how temporary the things of this world are. And if we hold on to them, one day soon, just like the rich man, they are going to be snuffed out like a candle, and poof, they're gone. And it's on that day that our hearts are laid bare before God. And let's not miss the point here that Jesus is trying to make. There is a place for those who are not merciful. It is not a kind place. It is not an indifferent place. It is horrific. It is full of pain and sorrow and torment because it is the place where God's mercy cannot be found. God's presence is no longer to be found. Why is there such an emphasis on the rich man's torment in this passage? Because Jesus wants us to know that the good life we all seek is found in being merciful. It's to be found in using our resources, what we have for the good of others. And the rich man's failure to be merciful begins with his failure to use his money and his resources for the good of others. Rather than, seeking up the good of, rather than seeking the good of Lazarus, he stores up for himself treasures and lives abundantly. You and I, when we fail to use our abundant resources, and Charlie pointed out last week, all of us have abundant resources. 
When we fail to use our abundant resources for the good of others, we can be just like the rich man. You see, money in the church is meant to flow freely, like blood. It should be flowing through the church, giving life to all of the organs in the various places and the people within the organism of the church. But what so often tends to happen is we sit on our resources and it coagulates and it clots and it prevents the blood and our resources from flowing and giving life as God intended it to. Now, it's an understatement to say that we live in a complex world. I get that. It's an understatement. The, wor- the needs in our world are enormous. You try and just tackle one issue, homelessness or brokenness in, in families and, and broken communities in urban areas. You try and get to the roots of those issues and the, the list just goes on and getting to the root. How do we address these needs at the source? And I get that. Complex, no doubt. But I think sometimes we use the complexity of the, of the issue as an excuse not to freely give. We say, oh, well, that's not really going to help the issue. It's not really going to meet the need, so I'm not going to give. But is that really a good excuse for not meeting an immediate need that we see? Is there really a good excuse for not helping to meet and and alleviate an immediate need that's before our eyes? Are there really proper excuses for inaction? Maybe you've thought before that it's not worth giving your money to someone or to a cause because that person's just going to abuse it. They're going to misuse it. I remember growing up, uh, I had several conversations with my brother, who um, most generous and compassionate man uh, I've ever known. He's no longer with us, and I hope one day I get to tell you his story. Um, but I remember talking to him several times about this. Like, what, aren't you afraid that if you give money to someone, they're going to take advantage of it? And he used to say, if I gave money to a hundred people and 99 of them abused it and only one of them used it to better themselves, it would be worth it. Now, I get it. Wisdom in all things. You know, we want to be good stewards of what God has given to us. And so maybe that's not the best ratio, you know, in his example. Um, But, you know, if you flip over to Luke chapter 17, the next chapter over, Jesus heals 10 lepers, and he knows that only one is going to come back and give thanks to God. But does that stop him from showing mercy to the 10? No. Listen to theologian B.B. Warfield, one of the great Princeton theologians from the late 19th and 20th centuries. He's going to address some of the objections that we commonly make to being merciful with our money. I just want you to listen to this as I quote him at length, and the quotes will be on the screen here behind me. Warfield said this, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. Well, if so, you must be like him in giving. For though he was rich, Yet for our sakes, he became poor. Now, here's the three objections that Warfield addresses. Objection number one, my money is my own. 
his answer. If Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own, then where should we have been? Objection two. But the poor are undeserving. His answer. Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection three, but the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, and yet he gave his blood. Oh, my dear Christians, If you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's a good word for us. Now here's the point. When we understand the gospel and what has been given to us in Christ, as we plumb the depths of our own misery and need and what God has rescued us from, we find that there is hardly a good excuse for not being merciful ourselves. Now, maybe you're here, maybe you don't have any objections. Maybe you're on board with this so far and you're saying, yes, I know, but I just don't see any needs around me. And I hear you, and so this morning I want to use this opportunity as a time to give us a really just tangible way for us as a church to grow together in mercy. Now, if you've been here at Shady Grove for any length of time, then you're aware that on the first Sunday of every month we take up a deacon's offering. If you're new to the church, you might not know what deacon means. Deacon simply means servant. And in Acts chapter 6, deacons are set up as an office in the church to help meet physical needs in the community. And so every month as a church, we take up the deacons fund to help replenish the deacons and and, and serve them in order to help them serve needs in the community. And so you may not be aware, but one of the ways the deacons use this money, the way they steward this money, is that people in the church or people outside the church can call and share with Kathy or Jeannie, whoever picks up the needs that they have, whether that's for rent or to pay, you know, uh, heating bills in the cold months, to pay groceries for rent, whatever it is, they can share that and they'll take information and pass that along to the deacons. Then the deacons collectively steward the resources for the good of others. And I just have to say, just being here for a couple months, the church is so merciful in doing that. I don't know of any other church that does that got to be honest, that helps meet these needs in the community like that. It's incredible that you all would give to this fund. You may also know of our adoption fund in the church, the fund that we can give to in order to help families bring children home, to bring their children home, to grow their families through adoption. We heard a few weeks ago from a family from the Germantown plant who benefited from the adoption fund. And that's because people in this church have been merciful to give so that people could receive mercy. 
Well, now it's easier than ever to give to those two funds because online giving is available. And you can go to our website. If you go, just go to shadygrovepca.org. Go to the top right-hand corner. You can see the give page. There's instructions there. And one of the things you can do is set up a recurring gift to either the deacon's fund or the adoption fund. You don't have to wait to give to when we're prompted. And so here's the question and the challenge that I have for us as a church. What would it look like for us to grow collectively even more and abound even more in our mercy in giving to these two funds of the church? What would it look like for 10 more individuals or 10 more families to commit to giving $50 a month to the deacon's fund or to the adoption fund? That's $6,000 more a year at the cost of just a few Starbucks trips. What would it look like for us to challenge each other, to push each other, to sacrifice just a little bit more so that other people could receive our mercy? Friends, Jesus makes the point clear. A failure to be merciful begins with a failure to use our money and resources for the good of others. But you see, there's more to it than that. It goes even deeper. Jesus presses it in deeper because how we use our money is only the surface. Behind a failure to use our money well is a failure to steward our time well for the good of others. Time. Time. Time is a fickle thing, isn't it? We always think we're going to have more of it, and then we're always left thinking, where did it go? Right? That's the pattern of our lives. We overplan, and then it just, it's gone. The rich man certainly wished he had had more time. Notice how distorted his view is here in verse 24. Even in his torment, he wants Lazarus to come and serve him. Send Lazarus to put his tongue on my finger so that I'll be treated well here in this place of torment. And what does Abraham say? You had your chance. You had your opportunity. You had your time. You didn't make use of it. Now, Lazarus is here. You are there. You enjoyed your things. Now you're there. Lazarus is here. It's too late. It's too late. You see, being merciful isn't just about the money. It's about making time now, making the best use of the time that we have been given for the good of others. Because money without love, money without time given in love, what is it? It's a shell. It's hollow. There's nothing to it. And everyone has time to give, even those without a spare dime in their pockets. You see, it is with our time that we give loving service, that we show pity, that we show sympathy, that we show compassion, that we bring personal help. Money doesn't do those things. Time does. 
And these are the true coins of the Christian. They are the coins that bear the stamp of heaven. They're earmarked as the currency of Christ. These coins are far better than money, for money is a poor thing without love. Friends, money will not comfort the sad. Nor does it cheer the lonely, nor does it lift up the fallen, nor strengthen the faint, nor support the tempted, nor heal the brokenhearted, nor soothe weariness, and it certainly doesn't dry a teary eye. Time does. Time given in love. And these coins of loving service, these as Christians we can scatter into the world to bring mercy to others. But it requires our time from us. It requires that we steward our time. And changing our schedules, cutting things out of our weeks, I think that's going to be far more difficult for most of us than writing a check. So many of us are just so busy. We're just so busy. And that's because we've allowed our lives to be so cluttered with so many things. We've lost direction. We don't know where we were going. Things just happened and families grew and and all this stuff. And then we wake up one day and where did our time go? We've left no room to wipe away tears. We've left no room to bring cheer to the crying saint here in the church. We've left no room to bring a meal to our coworker, to minister to our neighbors. We're so busy with our programs or our children's activities or what's going on, our co-op stuff. Even programs in the church can become too much if they take away our time to serve others. Now, that's a funny thought, isn't it? If we want to be merciful, then we must make an inventory not only of our spending, but also how we make use of our time. And we need to build in the margins. We've got to build in the room to show mercy and compassion towards others. How often do you think the rich man walked by Lazarus and said, ah, I, I see you. But there's a lot of stuff to do today. I got meetings, got an appointment, got a deadline. I'll get him next time. How often do we say similar things? I'm busy today. Got a meeting, got a deadline. Children's got to go. You know, kids got to go. Got to take them here. Next time, next time. Jesus is warning us is that if this is the way we're going to live our life, friends, there might not be a next time. And there's nothing waiting for us but regret. The summer between 2008 and 2009, some of you might fondly remember that as the summer of the housing burst. Um, That was actually the summer I was doing an internship at Freddie Mac, so it was very, very interesting for me. Um, But uh, during that summer, they schmoozed us as interns, okay, because they wanted us to come back. They're trying to incentivize us to come back and work uh, after we graduated. And so they basically paid us not to work, uh, essentially. And it was great, you know, being on the receiving end of that. Um, but they paid us well, expected very little of us. And um, that summer, I was given an opportunity to go back and visit my grandfather 
in South Dakota, and uh, I was very, very close with my grandfather. He was like a second father to me, um, just loved me tremendously, and uh, very, very close with him. And I, would, I tended to go back on the summers, you know, when I was on break. Um, I had been doing that for, I don't know, 12, 12 years or so at least, going back to see him. And um, that summer, my family went back to go visit uh, South Dakota, and I decided to stay um, at the internship because I wanted to make money. And I said, you know, there's only so much time that I can make money in this internship, and so I'm going to stay. Within a month, my grandfather was dead from a heart attack. Never got to say goodbye. It's the single greatest regret that I have in my life. And I'll carry it with me till the day that I die. Instead of choosing to go spend time with a loved one, I chose the money. And now I'm paying the price. I sometimes wonder if part of the eternal conscious torment that we speak about when it comes to hell is the eternal feeling of regret, an eternal pit in our stomachs that we could have done more, but now there's no more time. You see the rich man's regret in verse 27. Abraham says, it's too late for you. Besides, there is too great a chasm now to be overcome. You can't cross from there to us and we can't cross over to you. It's too late. And so in his regret, the rich man begs, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house. Warn my family that they might repent. But you see, this is where we see that being merciful is about far more than our money. It's even about more than our time. Being merciful comes down to belief. What do you believe? Specifically, do you believe that you yourself have received mercy from God? If so, you will be merciful. That's the big secret. This should be a comfort to the Christian. This means that if we are genuinely believing the gospel, if we are reminding ourselves of the gospel, that Jesus saves according to his mercy, that I am a great sinner in need of his mercy, if we are really believing that, then we will see our works of mercy growing alongside of us. You see, our, our works of mercy, what we do with our time and our money, that needs to be sanctified just like every other area of our life. Becoming merciful isn't just a one-time event. It's something we all have to grow in. And how do we grow in it? With belief. As we grow in our understanding of the gospel, we should see ourselves growing in a desire to be merciful. Mercy comes from the wellspring of faith in Jesus Christ. In verses 29 to 31, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, when you see this expression, Moses and the prophets, it's basically um, a way of saying the Old Testament. It's a summary. It's the beginning to the end. It's a way that uh, Abraham was saying, you have, they have the Old Testament scriptures. Let them hear that. And so our service this morning 
was intentionally crafted that you would see some of these scriptures to which Jesus or Abraham in this parable would have been referring to. You have places like Exodus 34, the psalm that we read at the beginning of service, which talks about God's mercy towards his people. And then you have places like the book of Isaiah, many of the prophets, or Proverbs 19 that talk about the expectation of God's people to go and be merciful. You see, this is the great pattern from beginning to end of the Bible. God shows mercy. His people receive mercy. They go and show mercy. You see, that's the great pattern. There's never been a salvation by works. It's always been receiving mercy and then showing mercy from beginning to end. So Abraham says, they have the scriptures. If they believed, they would be merciful. But the rich man says, no, not enough. They need to see a man back from the dead. Then they will believe. And Abraham says, what? Nope. If they will not believe the scriptures, they will not believe if a man comes back from the dead. See, this is why I never believe someone who says, if I just had more proof, I would believe. It's not about the proof. It's about belief. Not saying there isn't proof. If you want proof, we could spend a whole afternoon here pulling out the books. But there will always be an excuse if there is no belief. You want proof, go walk outside, feel the cold air smack you on the face. There's proof. But it's not about the proof. It's about belief. There's a great irony here in that John 11, many of you know, is when a real man named Lazarus was raised from the dead. But what happens in John 11? The high priests get angry. They still don't believe. And they say, well, now we've got to kill Lazarus too. There's an even greater irony. Because in this parable, Jesus is pointing to himself. The God-man laid down his life for merciless sinners, died, buried, raised again from the grave to new life, and appeared to many. And yet, in Matthew 28, 17, after seeing the resurrection, it says, many believed, some still doubted. It's not about the proof. It's about belief. But you say, why do I need belief? For I am already merciful. But by whose standard? For isn't it the case that human love and affection grows in direct proportion to the love and affection that we receive? Children learn to love their parents based on how they're loved by their parents, right? Wives learn to love their husbands as they are loved by their husbands, right? It goes vice versa too, of course. Um, we learn to show loving kindness towards others as we receive loving kindness, right? Do you want to be merciful by God's standard? then you must receive God's mercy. Only then will you know how to show mercy. 
This is why if you think that showing mercy or showing love or showing compassion to others is going to earn you God's favor, then you have it twisted. For we will never love with great enough portion to earn. Never. But if, if mercy and love is freely given, then that changes everything. And indeed, it is freely given. In Titus 3, as part of our service, we read that God's mercy and loving kindness appeared to us in Jesus Christ, not according to our good works, but according to his mercy, freely given. And then what does it say in verse 8? Those who have received God's mercy can now go and devote themselves to good works, for that is profitable for people. That is the pattern. Do you want to be merciful? Do you want to grow in showing mercy toward others? Then friends, the answer is the same for Christians and non-Christians alike. Believe the gospel. Believe in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ who died for your sins. Believe in your great need for mercy and the blessed treasures of the good and merciful life will be open to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a tough teaching. You have given us much and you expect of us much. Lord, we receive your warning that if we do not receive your mercy in this life, if we do not live a life in accordance with the mercy we have received, time will run out for us. And that is a horrific thought. But comfort us, we pray, in the knowledge of our salvation, that we have received mercy not because of what we've done, but because you love us and you are a merciful God showing compassion to thousands upon thousands in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We pray this now in his name. Amen.